So we have to be comfortable challenging ourselves to take this pivotal moment in Indiana's history to change the narrative, to change the faces around the table. Everyone's not going to be happy about that. But if we say that we want to be a premier state that is the best place to live, to work, to learn, to stay, we're going to have to make some adjustments so that we can get that talent here. That was Kara Herring. Indiana's Chief Equity, Inclusion, and Opportunity Officer talking about her new role in state government and the impact she and her team hope to make on increasing DEI across the Hoosier State. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Kara, it's so nice to welcome you to the Freedom Forum. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Now, before we jump into our topics today, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you and some personal factors that may not be readily known that really influence your journey to becoming the state of Indiana's first Chief Equity, Inclusion, and Opportunity Officer. Well, yes, I would love to, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Uh, First and foremost, I want people to know that I am a Hoosier through and through. I'm from South Bend, Indiana. That's where I was born and raised. I went to Purdue University for undergrad, so I'm a Boilermaker. And then I went to Valparaiso University School of Law for law school, so go Crusaders. Um, So I'm an Indiana girl. That's, That's really important to my journey to this role. And probably the second most important thing for me to tell people is that I'm the daughter of pastors and community leaders who Mm. really instilled in myself and my siblings that we were created for a purpose much bigger than our own selfish desires. We were created to serve people and to help our communities and to be a voice for those that don't always have a voice in certain situations. And that was just... In, in our home on a daily basis, we saw our parents do it. And yeah. so it wasn't like this kind of facade. It was really who they were and who they are. They've been in ministry in South Bend for 48 years, close to it. And my siblings and I all work really closely with them serving the community in St. Joseph County. So that's a huge part of my journey and yeah. why I am where I am today. That's awesome. So you come from a family of community leaders and community servants. And so yes. that's just kind of in your DNA. So tell us about your current role and how that came to be and why you believe it's so important for the state of Indiana, like so many other leading businesses, to have a publicly stated focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. For example, a DEI officer like yes. yourself, a DEI statement, and other examples of equality and equity. Yeah. Why do you believe that's so important for our state? Well, you know, to go back to the the first part of the question, Governor Holcomb, the 51st governor of the great state of Indiana, I'm so proud to work for him and so honored to work for him. He did a press conference in August of 2020 around how true equality and equity lead to opportunities for all. And during that press conference, he committed to standing up the state's first ever chief equity inclusion and opportunity officer position, and then also setting up the state's first ever equity data portal mm. um, so we can track progress. And so that was really the impetus for the office. Some conversations that he had with his his cabinet and others in his leader on his leadership team and so that's how it came to be uh, I was contacted by someone from the state who said hey I worked with you many many years ago on a short project I think you would be great for this position now I did tell them I'm not a diversity expert I was working at the University of Notre Dame as the director of public affairs and so I was in a very different field mm. I'd done some compliance work um, but I, I threw my name in the hat 
And it turned out that I was the, the person that was chosen to leave the office, which was very exciting. But I think it's critical that organizations, especially at the state level, CEOs, that they put a position in a position of influence, right? The positions are created sometimes and they're buried in HR or right. they're buried in, you know, an operations manager office or something like of that nature. But the same way you have a CFO, a chief financial officer, because you're concerned about the finances of the organization and the bottom line and how you're, you're doing financially, the same way you have a chief equ- uh, administrative officer who's right. making sure that all the operations are going well, you really do need that senior level diversity position because if it's important and, and it's, it's shown to be important by that senior leadership level, that will permeate and trickle down throughout the rest of the organization. Right. And it's not a knock to organizations that don't have it at the top, but it's really important that even if it's not at the top, that person has the influence and they have the autonomy to really be a part of the decision-making processes that impact your strategic planning, your hiring, your promotions, your pay equity, that voice needs to be at the table. I've talked to so many um, DEI leaders in other organizations, and one of the things I continue to ask them, and I want to ask you, is do you feel empowered in mm-hmm. your role? Right? Yeah. I, I've talked to so many DEI leaders who have the title but don't necessarily feel empowered to really make yeah. change. Do you feel empowered in your role and 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 ready and equipped to make real impact in the state. I do. You know, I'm really blessed to come into a position. I came into this position and the governor was very clear that this this was not a facade. This wasn't like window dressing. Right. This was a substantive role. And so before I even accepted the the offer, I wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to hire a team because a lot of times these positions are the solo person in the organization. They get burned out. And I wanted to make sure I would have a budget. And so we had those conversations and they assured me and that when I came in, I started writing position to descriptions and bringing on a team. So yes, from that standpoint, from the organizational standpoint, I feel incredibly empowered. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always easy because I am pushing the envelope and and having us think about things in a different way. Change can be uncomfortable. And so when I come in and I'm like asking questions about pay equity or why is this policy written this way or why haven't we done this this way or what's the legislation behind this and why, that can make people feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, it's I'm not saying you've done anything wrong, right. but we have to examine those things. So you can still feel very empowered and also feel the burden of some of the barriers that exist when you're doing this work. But there's a way to navigate that in a graceful way. And really, it's about building relationships with some of those people that control the policies or they control the way that things are implemented. Just really trying to build relationship with them and understand why the, op- the, the organization has operated that way, you know, in the past. And are there opportunities for us to think differently and bring in a, a new innovative perspective? And it's a, it's a challenge every day. But yeah. I think we're making good progress, though. Yeah, that's. That's exciting. So going back to your time at Valpo, because you said you went to (laughs) Valpo Law School, Mm -hmm. and you know I, too, am an attorney. And one of the reasons why I sought law school was because I truly believe that that is a career that enables you to do just about anything, right? Whether you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to actually practice law like I do, or go into government and politics. So I'd like to know what led you down that path? What (laughs) led you to the path of government and politics as compared to so many of the other things you can do with a law degree? Yeah, I would say, um, and this is, you know, some people have 
have their North Star. My North Star is my relationship with God. And yeah. I pray about everything. And I will tell you, had it been left up to me, I never would have stepped foot anywhere near politics. Okay, okay. Or I never would have stepped foot anywhere near pastoring or being in any type of spiritual position. And I'll tell you why. I heard a, a guy by the name of Bakari Sellers. You yeah, may know who he absolutely. is. I was sure. with him a few weeks ago at the University of Notre Dame. We spoke at the same, the same event. And he said, pastors and politicians, those are the only two professions where the people expect more of them than they do of themselves. Absolutely. And I could not have resonated with that more because it's just a really weird position to be in when people kind of put you up on this pedestal and they expect all of this moral greatness and they expect you to get things right. And I just don't believe in a posture of perfection. We're all human. Right. And so that was one of the main reasons why I kind of ran from politics or ran from the ministry. But honestly, when I think about my journey to where I am today, the work that I did at Notre Dame in compliance, I oversaw Title IX for a long time, Title VII, ADA compliance. I was there creating the workplace training, culture engagement training sessions for our faculty, our staff, and our students. And then I moved into public affairs where I was helping the university think more strategically and intentionally about their mutually beneficial relationships with the community sure. and our economic impact to the community. And you put all of that together and then you look at this position where the scope is statewide. I'm looking at how our different agencies are interacting with Hoosiers and the services that we provide, where are their barriers that exist so that we can create better access. All of the work that I've kind of done to date and even my work in ministry, it really aligns so well with this position. So when God opened up the opportunity and my hard work that I've put in over the past 15 years really started to speak for itself, I'm like, the stars are aligning. There's no way that I can turn down this opportunity to work for an amazing leader like Governor Holcomb and then to serve Hoosiers. Like I have 6.7 something million bosses and I love it. Every day I wake up and I know that I'm here to serve the Hoosiers of this state, my fellow Hoosiers and neighbors and residents. And that to me is like really living my purpose. Yeah, that's It's awesome. powerful for me. That really explains what motivates you and what keeps mm -hmm. you engaged and drives you. Because certainly I look at it from the landscape of, my goodness, <laughs> politics right now, nationally and I know. locally, I know. are so challenging. They are. And, you know, it takes a little more spirit and drive, I think, yeah. to be in politics now than it has historically. Tell me about it. Yes. It's so challenging <laughs> and it's yes. so kind of adversarial in a yes. way that it has never been. It's a lot of extremism. And so it's hard to find that balance and really invite civility into the conversation, Absolutely. you know, more. And, and it's a challenge, but I prayed for a challenge like three years ago. And I guess, I guess God yeah, gave it to me. Yeah, be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so listen, in my last episode, Jimmy McMillan, who I know you know well, yes. <laughs> asserted that one of the reasons he believes Indiana struggles to recruit diverse talent or even retain our homegrown grown diverse mm -hmm. talent in this state is because sometimes of our state politics that mm -hmm. the, our state politics don't always convey inclusivity or equity or value of all people. Yeah. I, I know that, you know, historically, our former governor, you know, got a bad rap, quite frankly, after some of the, you know, legislation that that happened under his watch. But the reality is, there have been measures, legislative measures since then, that have been just as challenging, and particularly for not seeming so very welcoming to diverse people. And, and at least Jimmy felt like mm -hmm. that was a real challenge to some of the the 
the challenges that so many of our Indiana businesses are encountering when they're trying to not only recruit diverse talent to Indiana, but keep our talent here. So from your perspective, how does the Indiana political landscape influence, and I mean, how does it help or how does it hurt, Mm -hmm. our statewide ability to recruit and retain diverse talent In answering that question, please describe some of the most challenging Mm -hmm. and the most rewarding parts that you've experienced as a diverse woman in an executive role in Indiana state government driving this kind of DE&I initiatives. Yeah, you know, there are layers of complexity to this response. And it's because, number one, as someone who's lived here my entire life, right, I, I understand the landscape that we're in. But also as someone who has lived here and experience many successes on many fronts, I know that it's it's a possibility. Right. And I think that it's the state's responsibility to shift that narrative and look at our legislation, to look at the policies that impact Hoosiers across Indiana and think, are we really thinking holistically about all Hoosiers? Or are we only thinking about certain subsets of Hoosiers? Mm. And that's why I was so excited that the governor stood this initiative up because it, it was 400 years of policy and legislation that got us here. Right. And it's going to take some intense policy and legislation to pull out. It's going to take some very ambitious approaches to DE&I efforts, to looking at the social determinants of health across the state, to thinking about our workforce. It's going to make people uncomfortable. But I think we are at a point right now where the governor has the right people on his team. There are some really powerful voices within the legislature to help us think about our policies, to help us think about the laws that are impacting Hoosiers. So I'm very hopeful that we'll get there, but it is going to take a level of bravery Mm. to stand up and say, this legislation is not in line with what we hope to who we hope to be as a state. We do want to get more diverse populations into our workforce. We do want to make sure that our black and Latino and Hispanic students and our students with disabilities are supported in a way that will help them be successful. If you look at our literacy rates for some of those underserved populations, we have a problem. Absolutely. And it's important that we focus our, our policy. It's important that we focus our funding. It's important that we focus the conversation and the narrative to how we can start to shift those numbers and go in a different direction. And I think we're there. I think we're at that moment. And it's why my, my office is, is really laser focused on using data to make sure that our approach is evidence-based. We're taking the subjectivity out of it. Let's just look at the numbers. Right, right. right? When you look at the numbers, if you look at our organizations, pull the Notre Dames of the world and the, the Cummins and the pull all of those top leadership levels, look at their boards of trustees, look at all those numbers, right. and just look at the pictures. We need more diversity. We need more women in those positions. And so we have to be comfortable challenging ourselves to take this pivotal moment in Indiana's history to change the narrative, to yeah. change the faces around the table. And it, everyone's not going to be happy about that. Yeah. But if we say that we want to be a premier in state, a premier state that is the best place to live, to work, to learn, to stay, right. we're going to have to make some adjustments so that we can get that talent here and that we can retain the talent that is here. Yeah, I see a lot of people that look like me and you, Angela, they can go anywhere in the world because when you have people of color and women who have gotten these advanced degrees and they've worked hard and they have all of these accolades, 
that's a hot commodity. A lot right. of people want that. And so Indiana has to pay attention to the ones that are here yeah. and say, we want to keep that talent right here and cultivate more of that because it makes our economy better and it makes our communities better. Absolutely. Guess what? When you have a lot more people of color and women that are in positions where they're in high wage paying jobs and they can purchase homes and they can get great education, you have a lot less people in your school to prison pipeline. You have a lot less people that are in need of social services right. because we're empowering communities through jobs and economic development. So yeah. that that's really what we're focused on it's important yeah absolutely so listen I, I want to ask you because you know I do this podcast I've been a black woman my whole life as have you <laughs> it, it's hard for me to really understand the challenge right it, it really is hard for me to put myself in the other positions the other person's shoes and really understand the challenge, the pushback, the hesitancy, the resistance to diversity. It's just hard for me mm -hmm. to really grasp where that comes from. As you travel our state, mm -hmm. get out here and talk to Hoosiers, really get into some of these communities, rural communities, yeah. inner city communities, all across the state, places that I'm sure I've never even, don't <laughs> even know exist in Indiana. What do you hear from the people around the sincere fear yeah. or... I don't know, the unknown that mm -hmm. they're really dealing with. When we talk about this diversity and how wonderful it can be, what are the true, you know, not just the people who are just against diversity and black people and people of color, but sincere Hoosiers who are not just bigots, yeah. but have real fears and yeah. real concerns about their livelihoods or how this will affect their children or yeah. grandchildren or the opportunities yeah. that are available in this state for their, you know, grandchildren yeah. or such. Yeah, there are valid concerns out Absolutely. there, right? Because I, I believe strongly that a person's perspective is is based heavily on their experiences in the world, how right. they've been raised, where they were raised, who raised them. Right. And so I always love to validate those perspectives because I understand that's how they view the world. What I do notice is that 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 kind of scarcity mindset where they feel like if we push efforts to diversify, then the people on this side are going to lose out on something. We're right. going to lose something. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. Like y you can still win and others can win, too. Right. We have that capacity in this state. If you think about how well our state, our economy has done and the governor has touted the numbers, I won't try to repeat them because I'll get them wrong and I don't <laughs> want to get the numbers wrong. But we're doing well. There's enough in this state as far as economic development and resources from the state and phil the philanthropic sector and some of our private sector, where if we start to create opportunities to bring others into the conversation, it's not going to hurt the opportunities that already exist for other people. That's right. not what this is. And this is how I talk about it with those communities. I talk about it from a sense of social determinants of health and how people are experiencing quality of life. We all want to have the best quality of life available to us and our children and their children. Right. And so the more that we create opportunities to increase better health care for underserved populations, the more we increase better educational opportunities and, you know, the grad level and K through 12 space, it really starts to lift all of our communities right. up. And so I try to talk about it from that standpoint. And the other thing that I focus heavily on with these communities, especially when I'm out in rural Indiana or I'm in a smaller town in Indiana, we talk a lot about just the 
the challenges with getting back to a place of civility mm-hmm. and constructive disagreement and compassionate listening so that we can utilize empathy. Right. When you just when you try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and you understand that they we're all out here trying to do the best we can right. every day. If right. COVID taught us nothing else, it should have taught us to be gentle with one another because you just never know what people are dealing with. And when I talk about that, just quality of life and really wanting to work hard so that you have a good quality of life for your family and your community, that resonates with people across races, across right. genders, across socioeconomic status, because we all want to live our best lives. Right. And I, be- I believe that we can get to a place in Indiana when we are strategic about where we're putting our resources that all of us will have access to the opportunity to live our best lives. And I say access to the opportunity because our job in state government is to make sure we remove barriers. We re- are remo- removing barriers to access. Now, once we remove those barriers, what people choose to do with that access, what they choose to do with those tools that we've provided, that's on them. You right. got to work hard. Hard. You got to make the decision that you right. want to get out of what you're out, you know, inside of. But I think we have an obligation to do that as state government to create, you know, a pathway into success, a pathway into purpose for people. Yeah. And that resonates across races and, you know, genders and, and socioeconomic yeah, barriers. That's right. All that. That's Everybody right. wants their selves, their children, their family to live their best that's life, right? right? That's, that's all right. anybody for is, sure. is striving for. So on that flip side, Kara, what what are some of the basic understandings that you believe everyone, particularly Indiana business owners and corporate leaders and decision makers, should know and appreciate with respect to diversity and equity and inclusion work, particularly for predominantly non-diverse organizations? In, in other words, we've talked a lot and continue to talk about some of the initiatives you can implement, some of the programs, things you can do to increase diversity, equity, inclusion. But it seems like everybody's looking for a quick fix. You just mentioned it took (laughs) us, you know, however many years to get here. It's going to take some time to get out of this. Jimmy mentioned that last time that, you know, you got to start early, start investing early, drive a pipeline and build a pipeline. We're not going to get out of this immediately. We didn't get into it immediately. What things do you think that some of our corporate leaders and uh, business owners need to understand about this work, particularly in this state, that will give them a little more comfort or solace in the work that it's going to take time for this work to really begin to show its return on investment. Yeah, you know, I, I sit down with CEOs and CFOs and college and university presidents and provosts, and we have these conversations. And number one, th- this is what I tell them, and you just said it, there is no quick fix to this. Right. You really have to sit down with your leadership team, your board of trustees, they need to be involved, where you have really substantive conversations about the current numbers, the current culture. You're probably going to have to do some surveying to get the qualitative information from your employees and the populations that you serve to see their perspective on diversity and inclusion and equity and belonging. That that feedback is really important. And I think that's really where organizations need to start. They need to have that kind of heart to heart amongst themselves and maybe bring in a consultant. You can bring me in for free because I work for the state, so I won't charge you. So they can call me and I'll come sit down with them and share some of our thoughts. But then once you do that, you really do have to make an intentional, like strategic initiative for your organization to make this a priority. The same way that we set up, I I was thinking about some of our goals and we have KPIs and Mm -hmm. our key performance indicators. And my team sat down, we went through our objective key results. When we do that just for performance review purposes with our employees, you have to build DEI, equity, belonging 
belonging and inclusion into those same methods of measurement to make sure that it's a priority for everyone across the organization. And this is the third thing that I say. Be gentle with yourselves. Mm-hmm. DE&I work is really challenging, especially when you're thinking about your workforce and you're trying to diversify your C-suite level executives or your board of trustees, board of directors. The, the talent pipeline is tight, period. So imagine when you're looking for talent that's diverse and highly educated and has all the years of qualifications right. that want to come live in Indiana. Right, <laughs> right, right. You're really going to struggle with that. And so you have to be patient. You have to lean into the networks. If you know a Angela, call Angela. Tell her to push the position out to her network. If right. you know a Kara, call her. Let her give you some board recommendations. It's it's a process. And it's going to take time. And so I tell organizations, be gentle with yourselves and yeah. be patient. But I do offer my services right now because I, I was sitting down with um, Jim Ryan, the CEO of Old National Bank, a few weeks ago and Roland Shelton from Old National Bank, just having some conversation about some of the things that they're doing and my perspective on it. I'm happy to do that with any business leader that reaches out to me because you don't have to pay a consulting fee because I work for you, right? So I offer that service too. My team has some scorecards and some disability scorecards and different trainings that we're using that we're happy to share with organizations across the state. Yeah, that's helpful. And I'm sure there's some people out there that just ears perked up because (laughs) like, oh, we need that. We need that. And it's free. That's even even better. No slight to the consultants out there. We'll get your work too because we're working on some of that, looking at how we can get more diverse contractors into our pipeline with with state government. We're working on that as well, but I do like to offer, especially to some of those smaller businesses that don't necessarily have the budget to bring yeah. in a consultant. And, and that's some yeah. real. That's a real. real. Thing. Yeah. It absolutely <laughs> is real. You mentioned and Jimmy mentioned too. DNI work requires a budget, right? You know, and some of these smaller companies and institutions may have the best intentions at heart, yeah. but just don't have the that's extra. Right budget to come in and do a full analysis on what have we not done what should we do so I think that is a great resource and I will ask you about more resources that your office can provide later on but but um, I want to get back to um, when I first met you you laid out some goals that Mm -hmm. you were pretty specific that you wanted to accomplish during your time in office I'd like you if you can to share some Mm -hmm. of those goals with our listeners and particularly let us know how you and your team are striving to bring forth for Hoosiers Mm -hmm. you know some of these new programs or initiatives or Whatever it is you have up the yeah. up, up your sleeve, because I think that people probably are unaware and yeah. it, and maybe you know un- would like to understand what's what you're focusing on. Absolutely, I appreciate that opportunity because you're right. We're getting the message out slowly, but a lot of people are just not quite sure exactly what we're focused on for these next couple of years. I do like to preface it with this: we are kind of bifurcated into two tracks. So we have 30,000 plus state employees. So some of our work is heavily focused on supporting the employment experience within state government. My deputy chief, Joseph Pinnell, is working on looking at how we are recruiting talent and hiring talent and mm-hmm. how we're treating that talent when they get there to retain them and then the promotional processes. And he's doing some internal training. So that's that's a big focus is serving our agencies within Indiana state government so that all of our employees have a, a, a great experience when they come to work for state government, sure. right? So that's one track. The The external track is really focused on how the state of Indiana is serving populations across the state in a number of different areas. I would encourage everyone to go to our website, in.gov. 
gov forward slash equity to look at our equity data portal. It will show you a number of data points in education, social services, workforce, healthcare, and public safety. And so a lot of that, we want to see those outputs change. We want to see those numbers go in a different direction. So we have a number of inputs that we're working on. Right. And I'll talk about three of them that are really important to me. The first is education. We have a very strong relationship and partnership with the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at literacy rates for our Black and Latino students and our students with disabilities to really figure out what's the secret sauce that we need to employ across our school systems in the K through 12 space to really see those literacy rates go up. There is a huge achievement gap right now, and mm-hmm. that is problematic. I love the programs that talk about getting more you know, people of color and young girls into STEM, but if they can't read at the level they're supposed to be Absolutely. able to read at, they're not going to be interested in learning about math and engineering and technology. They right. just, they'll, they're going to be completely intimidated. So we really got to get to that learning piece early. So we're focused on that, and we have some percentages that I can't share publicly yet that we're working with them to try to move the needle on literacy for those populations you know, in the next couple of years. Yep. Uh, the, the second second one, and I alluded to this before, is just creating more access to capital and access to opportunities for diverse businesses. We have a partnership with the Indiana Economic Development Corporation to look at that, and we're partnering with our small business development centers across the state. Uh, We are divided into 10 different regions, and so we have relationships. My deputy chief for external equity, Anthony Phillips, and I have been traveling to all of those small business development centers to see the breakdown of who we're serving, um, disaggregated by race, ethnicity, the types of businesses we're serving and type, so veteran businesses, rural businesses, to see where there are opportunities to really get more resources so that we can cultivate a stronger sense of entrepreneurship and business growth for diverse populations. The the third area is we're creating what's called regional impact reports, and all of this will be on our website soon, so people will be able to go on and look at this, but these regional impact reports, what they do is they pull out some of the key data points for communities across the state around education, high school attainment, workforce, and health. And it's overlaid with something the CDC put out during COVID called the Social Vulnerability Index. And what that does is it lets you see where communities have a a high social vulnerability, whether that's because of a lack of housing or food scarcity or transportation issues, whatever that might be. And then it will help those anchor institutions and large corporations within that region see where they can strategically put their investments, right? If you're in the north central part of the state and you see that food scarcity is a real issue for a particular neighborhood, maybe there are five anchor institutions or organizations that get together to create a grocery store or some type of food bank for that that area. So those regional impact reports are going to help organizations strategically think about and reimagine their investments into corporate social responsibility. So we're really excited about those reports. The fourth thing that I will tell you, and a lot of people don't realize this, this office is operating under an executive order. So that means, and you're an attorney, you know this, when the governor leaves, the next governor can come in and just get rid of the work. And so my team is being very strategic right now in setting up the case to present this in some form to the legislature next year so that we can get it codified into legislative statute. Because for me, this work shouldn't be driven by my personality. I appreciate it when people ask me to come out and speak and they ask me to do different events, but this work needs to be sustainable beyond the faces in the office, right? right? And so when I walk out the door and the governor goes on to his next big great thing, this work needs to continue because like we said, it's going to take some years for us to really see the substantive change we hope to see. So that's probably one of our biggest initiatives and that's our fourth. And I feel like we'll have something to, to talk with the governor's team about uh, around proposed legislation that we can get in front of the General Assembly next year to, to make sure the work is sustained. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I think I, I asked you that question specifically because I don't know if 
the general population realizes that this is not a role that's permanent. Right, that this right. may this role may not be it here. It could go away. Absolutely. That's, right. that's extremely yeah. important. I wanted to emphasize that because that makes a big difference as to where you, you mentioned this role shouldn't differ based on the face of the right, office. Right. But the goal shouldn't necessarily differ that's based right. on who's there either, right? right? I mean it's right. I, I've been in organizations where you get an initiative, you get some momentum and then you're your, your time is over and that and completely changes when yeah. the next person's in. So it yeah. is important for Hoosiers to understand that in order for this work to continue, we're going to have to vote yeah. to make sure That's that right. it continues. This That's isn't right. something that we can rely on someone else to make happen for us. And so we're putting together a CEIOO external advisory group of about 20 leaders from across the state that are going to help us think more strategically about that okay. um, in the coming months. And so there'll be more information about it. But yes, it, I hope it continues. Yeah, it's important. It's important. Yeah. Absolutely. So so let me ask you this. You mentioned earlier, and I, I said we were going to come back to it, the utilization of data to yeah. drive your DEI strategies and initiative. Of course, as a STEM person who believes in and science and data <laughs> and facts, yes. <laughs> uh, particularly to drive DEI initiatives and programs. Tell us how you think that is really important. How that, what data you use, and how that drives the initiatives that you and your team discern are important to roll yeah. out for the greater, yeah. you know, who's your state. Well, I I believe really strongly that data, when you just present the numbers. It takes the subject subjectivity out of the conversation. Right. I can go into a conversation with the CEO or the head of a hospital and be very emotionally riled up. And you have to do this because it's the right thing to do. Or I can take my chief data and strategy officer into a meeting with me and say, let's look at the COVID numbers, the death rates. Let's look at the maternal and infant mortality yes. rates by race, ethnicity, by county to see who's being most impacted by our, our health care or the lack thereof in a particular community. Sure. And when you put those numbers in front of them and then we start to talk about, okay, what are the things that we can do from the state perspective, the state level to partner with you to see these numbers change? So that the data is critical to us. And that's why the governor said, you know, I'm going to stand up this equity data portal and I want to give a strong shout out to the Management Performance Hub, MPH, Josh Martin and his team for the work that they did to set that EDP up and a gentleman by the name of Tim George who was with the state and he's with CICP now but their work has been fantastic so we use the data there are a few different pieces that we're looking at um, I mentioned COVID we're looking at COVID rates COVID deaths right in the the, the maternal space we're looking at infant mortality um, access to health care during the pregnancy looking at a number of those things public safety we're looking at arrest records and re-arrest records and recidivism rates and partnering mm. with the Department of Correction to think through how we create reentry programs at a quicker level, greater level, expungement programs, things of that nature, mm -hmm. um, and workforce, looking at unemployment rates and, and thinking about the employment pipeline. And people call it the great resignation, and Fred Payne called it the great reassessment. Mm -hmm. And I like that because I think employers are going to have to start to think about how they're treating the populations that they want to come in. I mean, Absolutely. this whole, we need butts and seats from 8 in the morning until 5, that's gone. Sure it's not going to happen. It that's sure just is. not the, the era that we're in now. Uh, that's right. So we're looking at those numbers. And then in the education space, as I alluded to, looking at literacy rates and high school attainment numbers and trying to figure out where the challenges exist across the state and then partnering with the appropriate agencies to implement 
whether that's legislation or policy changes or investments to, to, to move those numbers? I, I think that is a takeaway for some of our businesses to start with the data. Start, start there, the data, right? Yeah. Look what look how bad is bad, whatever <laughs> that is, yeah. and start there and figure out how to move forward yeah. and how to change things, you know. And Jimmy McMillan says, don't get t- tied up with the data. He's like, look at it. And get going, yeah, right? Yeah. He's like, don't sit there and harbor on it and dwell on it and make that another barrier to progress. That's right. That's Look right. at it and then get going as quickly as you can. And I agree with that approach. You yeah. know, Jimmy's a little more in the in the face than I am, yeah. but I agree with that approach. Yeah, I think it's that's important. right. Because it because it can be debilitating it can. if you sit there and that's just right. go over and over and over. That's yeah. right. And it can be encompassing you don't know how to dig yourself out of this hole and the reality is to your point it's one step at a time there is no one fix that's going to fix (laughs) all the the issues that we now find ourselves facing so so of course the data is one opportunity Mm -hmm. one tool to help us you know drive DEI strategies what other things that have you and your team utilized or implemented to really help drive DEI strategies for the state that could yeah. be transferable or applicable to our corporate, you know, yeah. environments and organizations? Yeah, I mentioned it before. Uh, Joseph, my deputy chief for workforce engagement, he's utilizing some surveying to get mm. feedback from the people within within the organization. So that qualitative feedback is really important. Um, we created something, and I like to talk about this because I want people to know. When I sat down with the governor. Um, and his team, I said, listen, I'm not a diversity expert. That, that's not why you hired me. I know you can't. You brought me in to come in and look at this strategically. And, and so I said, we, we shouldn't start with like anti-racism training or anti-bias training because we're going to throw people off from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that are still trying to figure out why the heck I'm here. Mm-hmm. Like, why did you create this position? I said, let's start with something called next level teams. And I've, obviously I'm using the next level playing off of the governor's branding and messaging. But the, the session is a 90 minute session that focuses on civility, compassionate listening and constructive disagreement. And really what it does is it uses all of those concepts or those tools that we can employ in the workplace to really start to create a culture of safety and Mm. belonging so that people show up as their most authentic selves and do their best work. And I've done this session with close to 3,000 state employees. And in the post-training survey, for those that attended the session and then took the survey, the feedback has been phenomenal. People are saying 95% of people that took that survey said this this session is packed with good or great content. 97% said every single state agency in state government needs to take this session. And the reason is because it doesn't make anyone feel guilty. It doesn't point fingers at anybody. It doesn't talk specifically about your bias and your racist. It really just talks about taking us back to a place of civility and compassionate listening so that we don't have to prove our employee value proposition. We just show our employees that we value them and what they bring to the table. And so that has been a really great tool and so much so um, that other organizations outside of state government, because like I said, I'm free right now. Call Mm -hmm. us. I've, I've, I've done this with some external groups and the feedback has been tremendous. And so if people are interested in that session, they can reach out to our team. We'll go out and do this 90-minute session anywhere. And then Joseph, uh, my deputy chief, has some great podcasts and book recommendations that we're going to be posting on our website soon. If people are interested in looking at culture, um, like training, bringing in consultants, we have some resources that we're going to provide um, that we would recommend. We kind of have to vet a lot of stuff to yeah. make sure that it's something that we would co-sign on. But we'll be putting those resources out soon. Yeah, it's good to know about that civility because... I think that's so necessary. I mean, going back to the political landscape, like, sadly, you know, 
diversity training is now taking on it's beyond race That's and right. ethnicity just treat each other respectfully That's it. like with we're human going, dignity yeah That's it. we're going back to elementary <laughs> kindergarten yeah. you know like just yeah. do unto others That's how about right. that Let's and DEI training is important and I think that there will come a day when the state is in a place our, our workforce where we've gone through this next level teams and we've gone through the inclusive leader stuff that will be ready for anti-racism and there are some agencies that are doing that sure they're they're they are they're way ahead right and that's great we didn't want to stop that work but in general we felt like we needed to kind of rein everybody in into the basic premise of human dignity right and just being kind to one another and it's actually going really well and I have gotten some flack from first from some people who are like you're soft peddling the issues and this is what I tell people I'm not soft peddling the issues but if you turn people off before right. you even get them around the table to have the conversation yeah. you're not you're not going to be effective yeah they're not hearing they're your not message. hearing you yeah, and so I want right. more people to hear this message message and we're, we're bringing them on board slowly and I think it's going well and that's why I hope it continues even when I when I go yeah right? yeah that's that, important that's so important so speaking of diversity we know it's May you know and we know yeah. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and yes. I'd like to give a shout out to all of our AAPI brothers and sisters particularly in Indiana who contribute so richly to the diversity and the thriving economy of the yes. state we want to particularly highlight that group of people, mm -hmm. what partnerships has the state um, garnered, established statewide with the AAPI yeah. community? What have you learned about some of their specific needs, mm -hmm. some of their specific misses for yeah. Indiana, some of the things that you're hearing that that group of folks really would like to see Indiana do to meet some of their specific needs yeah. that may be different than African-Americans right. or Hispanics or Latinos or di disabled people or yeah. other diverse populations. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you look at the data, people will say, well, the Asian-American Pacific Islander population is very affluent and they have high education achievement, but they still have challenges that they run into. And so I was so blessed when I came into the position, I got connected with Anushari Bog, who mm -hmm. works in IoT, and then Rupal Thanwala, who is a huge, huge advocate in the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And so I started working with them like the first month I was here. So I've built a strong partnership with them so much so that once I started writing my position descriptions, I pushed a lot of my jobs to them. And I got one of the best employees ever through their contacts. Her name is Connie Hudson, and she's Filipino American, and she is my operations manager in my right hand. And so I was really grateful to them for using their networks. But some of the challenges that we talked about and I'm so glad to have Connie's perspective in the office because she helps me think through some of this as well. Um, just having a seat at the table. So thinking about the boards and commission appointments and making sure that we're thinking about our AAPI professionals across the state when we're making those appointments so that they have representation. Sure. Um, thinking about some of the um, events and the way that we talk about uh, inclusivity in the state. Oftentimes it's heavily focused on the black and the Latino Hispanic population. And sometimes we don't do a good job of recognizing recognizing that we need to talk more about that inclusion aspect with the Asian American Pacific Islander group. So being more intentional about bringing them into those conversations has been really important. And then just last week, uh, the governor sat down with uh, Rupal Thanwala and a group of leaders from the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And Connie from my office was there because unfortunately I had a speaking engagement that, that conflicted, but just sat down and listened and, and got some feedback as to how we can be better partners and how the state can be more involved in some of their efforts. And so I think we're, we have a great relationship 
relationship. And I will tell you, I am very appreciative to Anushri and to Rupal just for how welcoming they were to me when yeah. I came in this, into this position because I didn't know what to expect coming into this work and to have their support has been has been critical. And so I hope to be the same type of support to them moving forward. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know both of them very, very well. As you likely recall, they're <laughs> STEM professionals. Yes. So I've been knowing them and working with them for quite a long time. And it's good that you have those connections and can specifically address and are having those specific conversations. As we begin to come to a close, I want to circle back to some of the resources that may be available. You've already provided so much. You mentioned you. (laughs) You are a resource. Some of this training that you've mentioned. But beyond some of those things that you've already mentioned, are there other resources or training or information that your office or your team has available to provide to Indiana business owners or mm-hmm. teams to educate them more about what's available in Indiana, what mm-hmm. are some of the struggles in Indiana, what can they do as a large corporation or maybe a smaller corporation yeah. or a solely owned corporation or a minority or bi- women-owned yeah. uh, organization to really help you yeah. and our state expand their DNI efforts such that this isn't just a state driven from the top down, yeah. which I really think is terribly important. I do yeah. believe that DNI needs to be driven from the top down, but also is initiatives and programs that people in the state embrace and are willing to get behind and advocate for to really make sure that we continue progress in this area that you know this isn't a two three year four year stint that's been really nice but we're going reverting back to our old ways what resources do you have available to Mm -hmm. kind of get out in the community and make sure that the work you're doing does last beyond your own tenure well, a couple of things. Well, first, the Next Level Teams, I encourage all business owners to reach out to us so they can learn more about that session. But uh, my data team, so Josie Fasolt, my chief data and strategy officer, and then Deputy Chief uh, Phillips, Anthony, who's overseeing external equity, they will sit down with any organization and help you map out how to look at your data. Oh. They are, they're more than happy to do that. And we, we can't get to everyone, right? Because we have so many hours in a day, but we travel all over the place. We'll meet right. with people virtually to help people think about what data points should we be considering is it, you know, are people dropping off in the interview process at the phone interview level, like looking at your applicant flow data and talking to them about how they can utilize that. But then Joseph, my other deputy chief, he has a number of resources around DEI certification. So maybe you don't yes. have uh, a DEI position at your organization right now, yes. but you're interested in getting someone within the organization certified. Yes. He has a list of five or six that are really good. Some of them are free, some of them cost. And so he can talk you through that. And then, of course, we're, we have our um, inclusive leader session that Joseph has created. And there's some really great language in that to just help those top level leaders think more intentionally about how they create inclusion and belonging within the organization. And so I tell people, if this is brand new for your organization, you cannot start with, a, you know, grad level calculus. Right. <laughs> you, right you have to right. really take baby oh, steps. Nine, nine. Oh, nine, nine. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> you have to take baby steps. And so we have that that entry level kind of, you know, approach to it with some scorecards and some different cute questions that you can ask your organization. I've sat down with boards. Rupal and Anushri have invited me to sit down with different boards to talk about where to start. And I think we have some good resources. So if you go to our website, uh, there's a form on there where you can contact us and let us know exactly what you're looking for. We'll find it for you. I want to make this as easy for organizations as possible. That's why we're here. If there's something that we can do to research it real quick and get those resources to you, we will do that. That is exactly why we're here, to serve the businesses and the people of the state. Yeah, so so one final question, Kara. You, we've talked about the importance of data, but what if you're not collecting the data? That's a problem. Well, yes. and we've been talking about that yes. too. <laughs> what if you're not collecting the data or you don't know what data to collect? Yes. What if you're not there? Yes. So you can't start at the data-driven approach. That's right. You, you don't have been the data. collecting the yeah. data. What well, about that? Start collecting the data. But we were having this conversation because I'm serving on this commission for the Indiana Supreme Court to look at equity and access with the courts. And we are doing some great work, but we're having a hard time collecting some of the data that we need because it's just not being it's collected. not being collected so yeah. we can't access it yeah. and so what I, I tell especially smaller organizations that, that probably can't afford to bring in like a Mercer or you know an Accenture to help them get started just start tracking if it's something as simple as your hires and who's coming through the process sometimes people they disclose race ethnicity and gender sometimes they don't but to the extent that you can start to track that start to track right. the numbers on your senior leadership team and at the management level start to do some internal um, listening sessions with your employees to get the qualitative data. There are small things that you can do to get you to where you want to go, but you got to start somewhere. Right. You got to start somewhere. And so those small things. And then Josie and, and Anthony, um, my, my data gurus in the office, I believe in hiring people that are way smarter than me, right. that know how to get into the nitty gritty of some of the things. I, I am not an ego driven leader. If I don't know the answer, I'm like, hold on, let me go get one of right. my teams. Right. They, they can they can answer some of those questions too, but you got to start somewhere. We need to start collecting the data so that we can be strategic with how we're setting up our initiatives. Yeah. That's how we'll be effective. That's excellent. And I, I, I want to thank you for, you know, sharing this knowledge. I think that there are a lot of people who don't realize that data is a driving factor for yeah. DEI. I think a lot of people think it's all about emotions and right. how you feel. And, and it is a lot of right. that. The inclusivity, the belonging is about making sure people feel comfortable and yeah. can be their authentic selves. But it also is driven by numbers. It and, is. you know, you have to have the numbers and the data in order to know where you stand yep. and where you stand nationally and regionally That's right. for a company your size, right? That's right. We're not saying that a, a company with 200 people needs to have the same amount <clears throat> of diversity as the company with 200,000 right. people, That's right? right? Or 20,000 right. people. Yeah. But there has to be some relativity relativity and you got to know kind of where you fall on the yeah. spectrum and another good place to start is with colleges and universities a lot of grad students that are looking for projects that are centered around data that they will take on an organization yes. and, and work on their data for them just to get college credit yes, to get course yes. credit to get the experience so I always encourage people I did this a lot when I was at Notre Dame I'd reach out to the grad school or I'd reach out to the Mendoza College of Business and I'd work with those students to create a project for them to help move something along that yeah. we needed and we didn't have the funding 
thing to do. Students are looking for that kind of work. Yeah. So so reach out to your universities and, and colleges too. Yeah, we actually did that on, on the board I was on. We reached out That's to good. some grad school students yeah. for an internship. We had a specific project we yes. wanted and thought, this is perfect for a grad they student. They love it. Yeah, that was perfect. They love it. Well, thank you so much, Kara, for yeah. joining us and, and dropping these nuggets, giving us a little more information about what's happening at our state house with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And importantly, and I'm going to reiterate this, we need Hoosiers to show up and make sure that this position carries on Agreed. beyond your awesome and impactful oh, tenure. Thank so you. thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank, thank you, you for taking this on. <laughs> we know that being the first is never easy. So thank yeah. you for taking it on. Thank you. thank you for setting the tempo and the expectation for what this role can be. Yeah. And let's pray and vote yeah. that we keep it going forward so that we can continue to make change for the state. Thank Indeed. you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's Absolutely. Been it's been great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you again to Kara Herring, and thanks to you for joining us on this 10th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the central Indiana business community. 